We take a moment this morning just to thank our brother Mike for leading us in worship this morning with the great music that we've been able to sing already, praising Christ. And uh, so it is a privilege for me to stand before you this evening, and, and if you will, uh, open with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 5. Now, if you have your Revelation notebooks with you, of course, I uh, encourage you to turn there, and if you don't have one or would like uh, one to, to follow along in the future, uh, there are more coming to us, so uh, feel free to, to ask, and we'll make sure to get one to you. But Revelation chapter 5, while you're turning there. I wonder if you've ever thought about the question, what if Jesus had never been born? What if Jesus had never been born? You, th you ever considered that question? It's actually a book, uh, the title of a book that was written over 30 years ago by a Presbyterian pastor some of you may be familiar with, uh, D. James Kennedy. Uh, but in, in that work, Kennedy sought to show both the impact of Christ and of Christ's church through world history. And historians have often wrestled over this question. Many have showed the incredible influence that the Christian religion has had in this world. But this chapter confronts us with a related question. What if Jesus had not been crucified? How would you answer this question? Because it is this question, and in answering this question, that we find our hope as we live life in this world. So let us then read this chapter of Scripture with this question on our minds and hearts. This morning, Revelation 5, beginning with verse 1. The vision continues from chapter 4 as the Apostle John records... And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. 
and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, let us again approach the very throne of God in prayer before we continue. Oh Lord, what a magnificent chapter of Scripture where You reveal Jesus Christ to us so that our hope will be found in Him. So Father, we pray that you will continue to be with us as we devote ourselves to hearing your word preached. That you will help us to, to focus on these truths from your word. And that you will be at work to renew our minds and revive our hearts. To rejoice in Christ. As this vision so clearly portrays for us. Through these words of Scripture. Lord, may you continue to be with us this morning and richly bless us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit empowering this message. For the glory of Christ and for the good of his church. Father, I pray that you simply use me as a humble servant to deliver these words. Father, be with us all here this morning so that we will, none of us will leave here without a love for Jesus because of the love which He so richly poured out for us through His shed blood on the cross. So, Father, we pray for these things then in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what hope then does God's Word reveal to us this morning? It's that Christ is carrying out God's redemptive plan in history. You know, in the midst of everything that's going on in this world, in the midst of the, the spiritual darkness which seems to be ever-increasing in our society, here are our words of comfort and confidence that Christ is carrying out God's redemptive plan in history. And God reveals this to us here through three scenes as this chapter unfolds. In the first scene, we read of God's requirement in verses 1 to 4. 
Which then brings us to the second scene, which is Christ's triumph in verses 5 to 7. And then finally, in the third scene, is heaven's worship, verses 8 to 14. So there's God's requirement following Christ's triumph and finally heaven's worship here. But let's consider then each of these scenes as this vision unfolds here this morning. Of course, the book of Revelation itself has been written in the midst of Christians in the church and their temptations and their trials and their tribulations, which is why God then here seeks to encourage Christ's church to remain faithful and to persevere through this prophetic visions and revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle John receives these symbolic visions on the Lord's Day, which were then written down by him and sent out to his churches so they would hear and keep these words as they live in this present evil age. Chapter 5, then, is a continuation of the vision that began in chapter 4, where John saw God in all of his glory, seated on his heavenly throne, ruling over all things. You may remember that in chapter 4, around his heavenly throne, there are angels that are described as four living creatures, and, and then another circle of 24 elders who were worshiping God for who he is and for what he has done. But so far, in chapter 4, John has only seen two persons of the divine trinity in his vision. God the Father is seen on the throne through the symbols of precious stones which reflect and refract his light like a prism, while God the Holy Spirit is symbolized as seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. What's Jesus asking? What about Christ? So after God receives worship from the heavenly host in chapter 4, John here continues in chapter 5 in recording this vision. And what does he see next? That God, who is sitting on the throne, is holding in his right hand a scroll. Now, to understand the scroll, we need to return to the Old Testament. So much of the book of Revelation comes through what God has already revealed in the Old Testament, which is why it is crucial for us to read Revelation through the lenses of, of, of the Old Testament and of these truths in the Old Testament. And so we'll see this throughout Revelation, but especially here in these visions, as, as, as we've already seen. But here we come in the Old Testament to the prophet Ezekiel again. And in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, we read of God giving a scroll to Ezekiel. And listen to these words. Ezekiel writes, Now when I looked... There was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Which is why after God gives this scroll to Ezekiel, he tells him to eat it. So that... Ezekiel would then be able to prophesy to Israel with its message of coming judgment in history for their unfaithfulness and sin. Well, here in Revelation, 
John also sees another scroll written on both sides. But unlike the scroll that is given to Ezekiel, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And while there is some debate about what is written on the, the, the scroll here, I think as Revelation continues, it becomes clear that this scroll records God's plan of redemption. It's what unfolds really through the rest of the book of Revelation, which is why then in this scroll it includes both God's salvation of his people and his judgment against the wicked. And so through the recorded events of God's scroll, we see that his judgments will bring an end to this age and will begin the age to come when we will enjoy the fullness of our salvation with eternal life in God's presence. Did you notice where this scroll was found? It was in God's right hand. Now, a king's right hand in Scripture is significant because it symbolizes his authority and his power. So this reveals God's authority over what takes place in this world. Brothers and sisters, this history is already recorded. It's already been written down. It is being carried out through God in His authority and power, which is why nothing happens by accident. And all that happens is a part of God's overarching plan of redemption. But this outside of the scroll is sealed with seven seals. So you can think of this scroll as, as rolled up papyrus paper with wax seals on the edge with the imprint of the king's ring. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals which symbolize completeness, showing that God's perfect plan of redemption is hidden, but ready to be revealed at the right time. You see, what is written on this scroll is secret, only allowing for someone authorized to break the seal when the times come so that God's purposes through human history will be carried out. It's why we read at the end of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, these words. And God said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. And now John sees a strong angel in heaven, preferably uh, or probably an arch archangel making a proclamation from the king with a loud voice. And he asks this question, Who is worthy to open the scroll and elucid its seals? See, God is now looking for a worthy servant to carry out this responsibility of opening the scroll, of loosening its seals, and as John looks around, you know what he sees? No one can do it. No one can step forward and do what the angel has asked. And, and did you 
hear how thorough John is here as he describes it? Nothing in all of God's creation can open or look at the scroll to read what is written. So stop to think about this. Not the greatest angel in heaven could open the scroll or loosen its seals. Not the mightiest man on earth could open the scroll or loosen the seals. Not the most holy saints in history could open the scroll or loosen the seals. What an astounding statement this would be. So this scene then leaves us with a question. Is this impossible? Is this impossible? After being brought up to heaven in a vision to be shown what must take place after this, John is left wondering, will God's plan be carried out? You see, without anyone to open and read the scroll, John becomes deeply saddened. And he cries and weeps as he mourns this heavenly dilemma. Now, have you ever, as you watched a movie, maybe a, a drama or a tragedy, wound up crying as the story unfolds? You're just overwhelmed by the sadness of what takes place before your eyes. Well, here John is watching this vision from heaven. And as it takes place before him, he too is overcome with sadness. John is surely asking himself, is all hope lost? Will God's plan of redemption remain unfulfilled? What will happen to the promised kingdom of God? Will wickedness and evil continue forever? See, without Christ, there is no hope in this world. Without Christ, history is meaningless. Without Christ, the powerful will oppress. Without Christ, justice will never fully come. Without Christ, we have nothing to look forward to but death. Oh, how we need someone to open the scroll of God's redeeming plan in history. Which is why, praise God, this vision doesn't end. There at verse 4. But it moves to a second scene. In verses 5 to 7, where we then read of Christ's triumph. See, finally, one of the angelic 24 elders speaks up and he says, John, don't lose hope. There's no need to weep. God's plan will be fulfilled. There is one who is able to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And who is this? Who can open the scrolls? Who can carry out God's plan of redemption? Well, he's described in two ways. 
First, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now this comes from Genesis 49, where Israel's patriarch Jacob, when he is about to die, pronounces prophetic words to his sons about their future. And of course, his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. But listen to what, Ju uh, what Judah here says, or what, excuse me, Jacob says about his son Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And of course, who ultimately fulfills these prophetic words? But Jesus Christ, he is the lion, which represents power and strength. Christ then here is the promised warrior king who will conquer his enemies. But not only is Christ here described as the line of the tribe of Judah, but he's also described as the root of David. And this comes from Isaiah 11. Listen to the opening verse of this chapter in God's promise through the prophet Isaiah. There we read, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. There shall be come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. See, Jesus Christ is the righteous king who restores the rule of the great king David. And as Isaiah goes on, we see how he will deliver his people from all enemies to live in his kingdom forever. That brings us to Isaiah 11, verse 10, where we read, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. You see then how Jesus is the promised king overall, Jew and Gentile. And he will reign on the earth as the promised king of David. Here then is the one who is worthy to open and read the scroll. But how is he worthy? Why can he open the scroll? We go on to see then in verse 5, it's because Christ has prevailed. He has overcome. He has triumphed. He's triumphed over Satan and all the powers of evil through his death on the cross. And so it's Christ's victory in death that accomplishes God's plan of redemption, which is why he is now worthy to open the scroll. 
and to loose its seals. See, here's the ultimate paradox of the cross. That while Satan and the powers of evil thought that they would overcome God's plan by killing Christ, it's through his very death that Christ overcame his enemies and accomplishes God's plan of salvation. So after his announcement here through this angelic elder, what do we find next? But now the third person of the Trinity finally enters and arrives to open the scroll and loosen its seals. As we read of Jesus Christ standing before God's throne as the one who is worthy. But what does John see? Not a lion, but a lamb. He sees a lamb as though it had been slain. Why this change of imagery? Because in this, he sees how the lion triumphs. The lion doesn't triumph through his might and strength. But he triumphs through his humble sacrifice. So he is the lion and the lamb. And John here draws this imagery of the lamb from the Passover lamb in Exodus, which you may remember where there was a lamb without blemish who would be slain so that this blood then would be put on the doorposts of God's people to deliver them from God's judgment as he came through the land where they were enslaved. Well, it's the same idea of the sacrificial lamb then that is expanded upon and describes the suffering servant in that great chapter of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. While there are glorious truths there throughout that chapter of Scripture, listen to Isaiah 53, verse 7, where we read of Christ, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see then that Christ is our sacrificial lamb and our suffering servant who freely offered himself to take our place and shed his blood under the wrath of God so that we would be delivered from his judgment. See, we deserve to live under God's wrath for our sins and our rebellion against God. But God loved us so much that he sent Christ to serve as our substitute, and he willingly offers himself for us. Oh, what a redeemer we have in Christ. He is the lamb who was slain. Then John sees this lamb as a ram with seven horns and seven eyes. The horns then reveal Christ's omnipotence, while the eyes reveal Christ's omniscience. So we see here then that this lamb who is slain is both all-powerful and all-knowing. 
That's why Grant Osborne notes that in Revelation, the Lamb of God has two aspects, the sacrificial lamb and the military ram. And they are interconnected, standing at the heart of the book and depicting the two sides of God's activity, both his mercy and his justice. Which is why the seven horns and the seven eyes reveal the seven spirits of God. Because these seven spirits re represent the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness and completeness. You may remember that earlier in this vision, in chapter 4, the seven lamps of fire are what represented the Holy Spirit before the throne. But now the Lamb's seven horns and seven eyes represent the Holy Spirit, showing that God the Father and God the Son send out the Holy Spirit to carry out their mission into the earth. Which is why Christ's church has confessed through the centuries in the Nicene Creed, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. You see, since Christ is able to open the scroll and loose its seals, he is the one that is able to take the scroll out of the hand of God the Father who is sitting on his throne. And in handing over this scroll, we see God the Father transferring his authority as king to his son Jesus Christ to carry out what is written on the scroll. Christ then is the one who is given authority by his Father to carry out God's redemptive plan. Which is why through Christ, the world will be judged and condemned, while his church will be saved and vindicated. So I ask you this morning, is Christ, the lion and the lamb who has slain your hope, Oh, is Christ your hope? See, while his judgment is coming against the wicked, and we all deserve his judgment for our sin, you can have comfort and confidence in this world. Because through his death, God has given Christ the authority to carry out his redeeming plan in history. So if you do not know Christ, if you do not have this hope, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Turn away from your sins and repentance and turn to Christ in faith. Believe in Christ as the lion and the lamb who is slain. Because his love was poured out for sinners like you and like me on the cross. He is where our hope is found. Which is why for Christ's church then, he is where our comfort and confidence in this world is found. 
because he has triumphed. And he is now at work through history to carry out God's redemptive plan. Well, how does heaven respond? As this chapter goes on, it brings us to this climactic scene in the vision. The third scene in verses 8 to 14, where we read of heaven's worship. Now that Christ has taken the scroll to carry out God's redemptive plan, worship once again breaks out in heaven. And the worship of God now leads to the worship of the Lamb because He is our God who is worthy to open the seals and carry out God's redemptive plan for the world. So in these verses, what we read of is more and more of God's creatures joining together in an antiphonal singing where some lead and then others respond. And this starts then with the four living creatures and the 24 elders and then moves to a multitude of angels and finally to all of creation itself. So we begin with the four living creatures and the 24 elders serving as heavenly worship leaders. And they fall down in reverent submission before the Lamb. And they hold two things. They hold a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. Now, the harp was a ten-string musical instrument that was often used in temple worship in order to sing the psalms and accompany the singing of the psalms by God's people. The golden bowls were used in the tabernacle and temple on the table of showbread outside of the most holy place where the Lord would then be present in fellowship with his people over a meal. And incense was used when Israel made sacrifices to God to give a sweet-smelling aroma to show that their sacrifices were pleasing in God's sight. Do you see then how here in Revelation, these angels serve Christ's church as heavenly priests who are bringing our offerings before the Lord as acceptable worship? And what are the offerings that we, that we bring or, or that are brought before the Lord? But they are our prayers. Our prayers. We see here that they are the prayers of the saints, which means that our prayers are brought into the very throne room of God himself by our angelic representatives. Remember how Christ taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what do we find here? It's through our prayers that Christ carries out God's redemptive plan. Isn't that amazing? that Christ will answer our prayers by accomplishing God's redemptive plan and bringing God's judgment into the world. Do you see then the relationship between our prayers and Christ's heavenly ministry? This is amazing. It's through the prayers of the saints that Christ will complete his mission and consummate his kingdom on earth. How central then prayer should be to the church. How central prayer is for the church. 
Because it's through our prayers that Christ continues His heavenly ministry. And so in response then to Christ's worthiness, the angels lead in the singing of a new song in worship to Christ. You know, this new song is different than the songs that had gone before because it's a song that's sung to the Lamb is our Redeemer. And so this song is a song of praise to Christ and what Christ has done. God's kingdom is coming because of Christ's death on the cross, because the Lamb has been slain for our sins. And so they sing these Glorious truths in heaven. And we read that since Christ was slain, that we are redeemed to God. Purchased. Uh, Christ has purchased our freedom from slavery to sin by Christ's blood. Oh, what a wonderful song to hear sung in the presence of God in heaven. It's the same truth that's expressed in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, where we're reminded that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You see that in our redemption, our sins are forgiven. In our redemption, we have become citizens of God's heavenly kingdom through Christ. And while in this translation that I've read this morning, it uses words us and we in their song, it's better translated them and they because these angelic beings are singing a new song about the redemption of Christ's church. This is our redemption that is proclaimed in the very throne room of God. But don't miss the diversity of the church for which Christ has redeemed. Because Christ has redeemed His church of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What a beautiful picture. That no people are excluded. No nation or race or ethnic group is better than another. We are all included in Christ's redemption. And through our redemption in Christ, He has made all believers to be kings and priests to our God. Which means we have the privilege in Christ to serve under Him as kings and to offer our worship to Him as priests. And did you notice how this is all Christ's work? He is the one who has redeemed us to God. And He is the one who has made us kings and priests to our God. None of our redemption depends on us. And we have done nothing to deserve this redemption. But it is given to us out of God's love freely and grace. 
But as the song ends, do you see the glorious future that awaits us in Christ? We shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. Listen, while we may go to heaven when we die, a day is coming when we will be raised from the dead to reign with Christ over his kingdom on the earth. This then is our future hope in Christ. And what happens next? That John looks and sees many angels then joining together with the four living creatures and the 24 elders in worship. And how many of these angels join with them? Well, there's too many to count. John writes there's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, if you like doing math, or, or if you don't, uh, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. 100 million angels. Yet, I don't think John is here trying to give an exact number. The highest number of the Roman world was a myriad of about 10,000. What John then sees in heaven is, is a place that is filled with innumerable angels who sing with a loud voice words of praise for Christ. And they respond to the angelic worship leaders then by repeating that Christ is worthy as the Lamb who is slain. And He is not only worthy to take the scroll and open His seals, but they also say that He is worthy to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing, which is a sevenfold praise in worship of God. But if that's not enough, as this worship is breaking out in heaven, we find that heaven itself cannot contain the worship of Christ. Because all of creation then joins in God's worship. We began the chapter by seeing that no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. But now we read that every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them join in worshiping God the Father and Jesus Christ. And why do they sing? Or, or, or what do they sing? They sing praise to God the Father who sits on the throne and then they offer the same praise to the Lamb because they are worshiping their triune God who's carrying out His plan of redemption in history. That's why Jesus said in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. And now they are worshiped as one. And how long will this worship continue? Forever and ever. Now, as we consider this time where all of creation joins in worship, this, of course, doesn't mean that all creation will be redeemed by the blood of Christ. This is made clear as Revelation continues. But what does it reveal? That Christ is Lord over all creation. And this will be recognized by all. 
at the end of this age. So after the four living creatures opened this heavenly worship service back at the beginning of chapter 4, now they close the worship service at the end of chapter 5 by announcing Amen and affirming the worship that has taken place of God and of the Lamb. And the 24 elders again fall down to worship our God who lives forever and ever. So what does God reveal to us to this vision? That Christ is carrying out God's redemptive plan in history. What a wonderful hope we have in Christ that He is the one who is worthy to carry out God's redemptive plan in history. So let us worship Christ who is worthy to control human history for God's glory and our everlasting joy. I love how Jim Hamilton brings out this truth. He writes, By his death and resurrection, Jesus has taken control of history. Jesus has seized destiny, not just his destiny, all destiny. Jesus is the one who ensures that the universe will have meaning. Jesus is the one who will judge the wicked and vindicate those who have trusted in him. Jesus is the one who will right the wrongs and heal the hurts and wipe away the tears. So as we reflect on human history and on the history that is to come, brothers and sisters, we know this. Everything that is happening in this world is being carried out for the purpose of God's glory and our good. Because Christ is carrying out God's redemptive plan in history. Now there's a lot of talk today about the need to be on the right side of history. And if you don't hold to a certain view or you don't support a certain social issue, then you're warned that you will be on the wrong side of history. But Christ is on the right side of history because He is the one who is carrying out God's redemptive plan in this world. So the question you need to ask yourself is, am I trusting in Christ who is in control of history. Because it's only by believing in Him and in His death on the cross that you will be on the right side of history. May we then be those who trust in Christ no matter how dark ahead the days may become. Even as we struggle even as we suffer, even as we may not see the ways God is at work through Christ in this world. We are given a heavenly vision to show us what is going on behind the scenes. And it's that Christ is the one carrying out God's redemptive plan in history. So may we worship Christ then for redeeming us to God by His blood. Because in Him, we have been made kings and priests to our God. And one day, 
we shall reign on the earth with him. May this be our hope. It's the one who's the lamb who is slain. Let us pray. Father, this vision, may it overwhelm us with the glory of Christ. May we be in awe of Christ this morning. And may we see him as the one in whom our very life and hope is found. Father, may we trust in Christ and in his control of history. So that whatever may happen in this world, we will overcome as he has overcome. Because we will one day be with him to enjoy life in your presence forevermore. May this then comfort us and give us confidence to live in this sin-filled world. Father, we pray for these things then in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.